Uh, last week, in res- this past Tuesday, I got an email that was in response to my first message last week. And uh, with the individual's permission, I want to share with you an abbreviated version because it basically set the direction of my message. This is what it was a young adult in our congregation. He said, a while back, you spoke on Isaiah 6 and 53 and inspired me to put both to memory. Expecting to find comfort in power and promise, I have instead found more of a lament. Over the years at Rexdale, we have gotten to know many in this church directly and many others indirectly through prayer. And a common and deep theme is a broken marriages, uncertain hope, unforgiven sin. In reflecting on all these and worried that I will be no different, I began to fear that it is easy to forget the revelation of our desperate condition and come to believe that we are basically good people that deserve salvation. If we do not remember these times, or worse, have never had those times when we experience Isaiah's horror, how will we have the humility necessary to live the Christian life, avoiding pride and bestowing grace? But when we forget the cold, searing pain of forgiveness, and he's referring to the coals from the altar that touched Isaiah's lips, we at best lose out on much growth in holiness. I am not wise enough to know what to pray as an end to this series, but hope that we really will become more immersed in our faith, and this in a very personal and powerful way, and moreover that you will be granted the wisdom to speak truth and hope into us who certainly need it. I was just gripped by this email as I read it, and I just, in short, here are three or four things he was saying. First of all, he, was, he, he looked for comfort, but he found lament instead. Secondly, and that lament was because he was confronted with the sinfulness of his own heart and that of a congregation that was glibly assuming everything was okay, by and large. He also experienced a fear that he would forget what he had seen of himself and as a result of that, lapsed back into pride rather than the life of humility that we've been singing about and giving grace to others. And then he concluded by saying, I'm not quite sure how I should pray for myself and for, and for me as a speaker. I couldn't have asked for a better setup or an introduction to the second message in this series on Isaiah. It's going to be another overview message. And this is just another illustration of this call to faith. It is not just in me as the preacher and the worship leaders, but also in us as a congregation that God is at work to shape what is going to happen here in this community. So I'm just so indebted for people who think like this and then who respond in this way. Now last week we basically focused on one single verse from Isaiah. If you will not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. Today is the exact opposite. You're going to get a smorgasbord of Isaiah's preaching. We're going to range all over the book of Isaiah. And his words will be far more important than mine. So you'll get much more exposure to his words than mine. And don't be overwhelmed because you're not going to remember all of it. Remember we learned last week that the primary goal in this series is not just more information, although that will come, but immersion. It's more experience. As familiar themes appear and disappear and reappear, you will remain in active interaction with the speaker. So don't worry about retention. Focus instead on the moment-by-moment experience of that encounter because you never know when God will speak to you. It is that kind of attention that is important. Now I got more feedback. Not written, but verbal. Not reason, but guttural from the gut, as we say. And those are important too. One individual was reading through the book of Isaiah, as I suggested, basically said, I can't handle any more of this gloom and doom. Somebody else said, I've had enough of this holiness stuff. 
Those are all perfectly understandable given the nature of Isaiah. And so we need to have some understanding as to the purpose of this kind of book and this kind of study that we embark on. Not least it is to have something of the kind of experience that this young man had. It is to be confronted with the desperate nature of our hearts so that we perhaps sometime for the first time lament over our true condition before God. Many of us can go through an entire life never getting to that point. Now the interesting thing is you never know when this will happen. <laughs> I remember several years ago, 1999 it was, I was speaking at one of our Alliance mission fields and I had been asked to speak ten times to this group of people. At the end of the second sermon, the field director's wife was on her knees, crying out to God. And she said something like this. She said, Lord, I I didn't expect to be spoken to like this so early. I guess she was expecting that by the ninth or the tenth sermon, something might happen. So you never know when. Right at the very beginning. It may happen for some of you very early. It may have already happened last week. I don't know. Much more likely, it will happen partway into the process. Uh, Let me tell you about myself. 1977, that was 30-odd years ago. I was still in Atomic Energy of Canada at that time. I was an elder in this church. I was teaching an adult Sunday school class on the book of Hebrews. It was a Saturday night. I was in Hebrews chapter 3. My wife and her sister were out singing. Sheila and Vijay were in bed sleeping. And I was studying this particular section. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 15. Here are a few extracts. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. So I just I had my commentaries and I was studying them and I was using a commentary by a Dutch pastor named, at least he worked in South Africa at that time, his name was Andrew Murray. And I read his comments on this passage. I want you to listen to them carefully. Or read them. This is what he said, commenting on this passage. When we trust too much to the intellect in religion and great care is not taken to receive each word as from God into the heart, the heart gets close to the living voice of God. The mind is satisfied with beautiful thoughts and pleasant feelings, but the heart does not hear God. When we are secretly content with our religion and sound doctrine, unconsciously but surely the heart gets hardened. When our life does not seek to keep pace with our knowledge, And we take more pleasure in hearing and knowing than obeying and doing. Then in the midst of all the pleasing forms of godliness, the heart is too hard to discern the voice of the Spirit. It is an unspeakably solemn thought that with a mind occupied with religious truth and feeling stirred at times by the voice of men, the heart may be close to the humble direct communion with God and a stranger to all the blessing that the living word can bring. I tell you, that was for me to be hit over the head by a two by four. And God spoke to me so powerfully that night about the lack of intimacy with God and the lack of prayer in my own life. Literally, my life was different from that day on. That didn't happen at the beginning of my study of Hebrews, it happened in the middle. And so it can be for some of us. Like that field director's wife, it can happen early. Like in my case, it might happen sometime in the middle. When you're engaging with your intellect and then suddenly God speaks to you about your heart. And for some of us it may happen much later on. And I also fear, but I pray not. Because Isaiah, when we get to his call in chapter 6, we will see that it is also possible that it might never happen to some of us. We don't want that. We hope not. But it's certainly a possibility. 
So that's at least one of the purposes of being confronted with the preaching of Isaiah. That we might experience lamentation at the condition of our heart and cry out to God for mercy. And whenever that happens, especially for some of you if it happens early enough, you say, well then why do I have to sit through more preaching like that? Remember the young man's other concern that he will forget it and move back into a life of pride? That's why we need repeated, continual confrontations with a holy God. That we might remain in an attitude of humility and have that servant heart that Karen was talking about so that we don't slip back into pride and arrogance. And also, just because it's happened to some of us doesn't mean there aren't others yet who are further on in in their divine appointment with God. So for all of these reasons, I would encourage you to listen carefully. Now, understanding the reason for something doesn't make it easy. And those who were listening to Isaiah's preaching didn't like it at all. And some of them said this. They say to the seers, which is another name for visionaries, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. They asked for two things. They said, hey, give us something that's pleasant. And in the Hebrew language, that word means smooth. It has no friction. (laughs) I guess in the vernacular, we would say something that goes down easy. So basically, they were saying to Isaiah, we don't like all this vision stuff. Certainly don't talk to us about holiness at all. Give us stuff that goes down easy. And then they in fact said, prophesy illusions. Uh, You know what an illusion is? It's a pretense of reality. And in fact, the word is a very interesting word in the language. It, it, it carries the idea that the listeners are actually involved in a game with the speaker. In other words, the speaker preaches lies, but he pretends it's true. And the people, while knowing it isn't true, go away pretending it's true. So everybody has a nice game, and off they go. Whereas both preacher and listener know there's actually more to it than this. That's what was going on there. They didn't like the preaching. And so they said, Isaiah, get off this path. Give us something easy to handle. Now in sharp contrast to this, this is what God says. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and a holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And what is one dimension of a demonstration of a contrite heart? He says in chapter 66, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You see, it is those that tremble at God's word, those that allow that word to do that work of revealing the condition of their heart, that cry out in lamentation and mercy to God, those are the ones that experience his comfort and the reviving of his heart. There is no more stark contrast than these two verses. Two different ways in which we are going to respond to the preaching of the word of God from Isaiah. Which will it be? Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusion, leave this way, get off this path, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel, or will we tremble at his word and become contrite in spirit and humble in heart? And experience his uplifting. So this is the choice that is really set before us right at the very outset. Now, it's possible that an objection can be forming in some of our minds. In fact, there are certain schools within the evangelical church movement that actually make this whole thing a platform. And that is, but you know, this is all Old Testament stuff. 
It's all different with Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, don't we really... We don't need all this kind of stuff. Well, there are some things that are different about the new, and I'll get to it, but not in this area. John, in his gospel in chapter 12, verse 41, at one point says this, Isaiah said this, by this he meant what he said in the previous verse, which is actually a quotation from the 6th chapter of Isaiah, where Isaiah saw the Lord. And he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Just think through this for a minute. That amazing vision of Isaiah 6, and we'll get to that in a few weeks, where he saw the Lord high and lifted up, just the train of his robe filling the temple, and the whole temple was shaking. And the angels were crying, holy, holy, holy. John says that was Jesus. That glory was the glory of Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. So to say, stop confronting me with the Holy One of Israel, is to say, stop confronting me with Jesus. And do you really want that? No wonder that just before he went to the cross, and Jesus prayed for his disciples, and you can imagine he would be praying about the most important things at a time like that, given the suffering that was waiting. He was about to finish his life work of redemption, and he was praying for us and the disciples, because he says explicitly, I don't just pray for the disciples, I pray for everybody who's going to come to know me through him. In other words, he was praying for you and me. And this is what he prayed. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent them into this world. For them I sanctify myself so that they too may be sanctified. And we lose it in the English translation, but these words that I've bolded and underlined, they're all the same word, holy. It is used as an adjective of our Father. It is used as a verb, what God does for us. And is used as a participle, which in the grammar means the kind of people we are becoming. So, a holy father makes us holy and we are a people who are continuing to be made holy. There's a thrice repetition of the word holy in there. It is no wonder that Jesus has a burden for you and I to become holy people because he is the holy one of Israel. So now you know how to pray for yourself. Remember that was one of the other things that email said, I'm not quite sure how to pray for myself. Now you know how you should be praying for yourself throughout this series. You should not be praying for illusions and things that go down smoothly and don't create any tension. Instead, you should be praying, Lord, confront me with the Holy One of Israel. Father, answer the prayer of Jesus. Make me a holy man. Make me a holy woman. May I continue to live in the process of becoming a holy man and a holy woman. Make me humble in heart and contrite in spirit. Let me tremble at your word. Let my attitude to that word be not casual. May I not be satisfied with games on Sunday morning. This is not a game that's going on on Sunday morning. Jonathan Edwards said, heaven and hell hang in the balance every worship service. There's a solemnity that goes along. So you need to pray for yourself that way. I can't produce that in you. I can't produce it in myself. Only God can do this. So that's one way you can pray. And I've given you these exercises in the study guide. So as I said, just enter into the moment for now. There's, there'll be plenty of time to study later. Now, next question. It isn't just hard for you. It's hard for me too. Uh, for two reasons. First of all, like you, I need a confrontation with the holiness of God regularly. I too can slip back into that kind of life that doesn't want to serve people. But there's another reason why it is hard for me. You see, a holy God is not a marketable God. 
most people in their natural condition do not like holiness. And they are busy redefining a God for themselves. Some time ago, Sham and I were facing an interesting situation. Uh, somebody that we knew quite well, or know quite well, had in fact left his wife of many, many years and was involved with another woman who had left her husband. Uh, through circumstances that were really not part of within our control, we were put in a position where we would be encountering these people in a social setting. And while the person, that, while the man that we knew knew of our views, we had no idea whether the woman knew what we believed and why we believed. And given that we were going to meet them socially, I sat on and wrote a letter to her and explained to her what our views were and where they were coming from. I got a response back, and one of the lines from that response was very telling. All I said was, I am a Christian too, but my God is very kind. He doesn't judge people. That's how people redefine God for themselves. By the way, they don't only, don't only redefine God, they redefine Jesus too. There were other people that were involved in this uh, social situation. Some of them who had a very different take on the situation than Sham and I did. And one of them at one point said, but shouldn't we be treating this individual like Jesus would? Yeah, I agree. But how would Jesus treat someone like that? Guess what? You don't have to guess. The Bible tells us in at least two places how Jesus would have responded. There is one story in John's Gospel. And while scholars may argue whether that's really happened or not, it certainly sits in the spirit of John. Where the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. And of course, their reasons were all wrong. They just wanted him to say, yeah, she's guilty, so they could stone her. Well, Jesus took very quick care of them. And off they, they were gone from the scene. And he looked at the woman and he said, I don't condemn you. He didn't stop there. There was no full stop after I didn't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And then he said, go and sin no more. He didn't leave us in any doubt how we are supposed to respond. And that was an isolated incident. Remember his dialogue with the woman at the well. In a very engaging conversation, he slowly moved her from physical needs to spiritual needs within her heart. And then he suddenly shocked her. He said, go get your husband. <laughs> he knew that she'd had five husbands. And that the person she was living with now was not her husband. So that's what it means to treat people in these kinds of situations. The way Jesus would treat them. But you see, people are redefining Jesus. They redefine God and they redefine Jesus to suit themselves. Now, this is why there is an immediate temptation for the preacher. This is the temptation. And one man wrote this. The temptation for the preacher, therefore, is to set aside the holy for something much more understandable and accessible that will serve people on their terms. Not a God whom they will serve on his terms. It will certainly make the preacher more popular. But if we take the God ideas and the God images, and I may say the Jesus images of our culture, and use them to appeal to the people's self-interest in getting a God who would serve them, he would no longer be the holy God. So, it's hard for you, it's hard for me. So that's my temptation. Well, it's easier to preach stuff that's smooth, right? Everybody's happy with you. My task, therefore, is to preach Isaiah like Isaiah preached himself. And very early on in my preparation, I wrote a very, I came across a warning. If you, the preacher, compromises in the slightest, you will betray me. 
And so both of us, it's hard for you and it's hard for me. So now you know how to pray for me too. You know how to pray for yourself and the study guide gives you an exercise. Uh, on March the 18th, which is about three days into my sabbatical, I had just begun my study of Isaiah, when in one of the overview sections, one of the commentators had given a one-paragraph description of Isaiah's preaching. I basically turned that into a prayer for myself. It's in the study guide, so if you want to, you can pray for me that way. But for some of you who don't use study guides, this may give you an idea of how I would like you to pray for me. This is what I prayed. Lord, I pray that my preaching may be characterized as Isaiah's was, with boldness, patriotism in the sense of a genuine concern for my nation, indignation and a deep reverence and spirituality. May I be gripped by the sense of your majesty as expressed in Isaiah's intoxication with the Holy One of Israel. May my delight in Isaiah's magnificent portrait of you, Jesus, never be something merely intellectual. I pray that I will be gripped by the reality of the suffering lamb upon the throne. And may the promises of your eventual exaltation and eternal reign of peace and joy create in my heart an equal longing for revival to which end I will preach, pray, and live as best as I know. I would love for you to pray this for me every Sunday. Because I can't do this. I just do not feel equal to this at all. All I know is I have to do it. And so I depend upon your prayers, and I hope as you pray for yourself, you will pray for me as well. So, let's step back a minute. What have we learned so far? We've learned, first of all, that we all need a prolonged exposure to confrontational and uncomfortable portions of Scripture every now and then to show us the condition of our heart. Why? They reveal to us the true condition of our hearts as desperately needy. And then as a result of continuing to be confronted like this, we move from pride to humility and maintain a spirit of humility and gracious service to others. You know, I didn't tell Karen what I was going to be speaking on. And God directed her to exactly these themes. We are trusting God. And if we will not stand by faith, what? We will not stand at all. Okay, so continue to join us in that journey. Then we also learned that this is totally in harmony with the Jesus of the New Testament, who is the Holy One of Israel. And then finally we learned that this is a challenge both for the listener and for the preacher. It's comfortable for the preacher to not hear preaching up for the people, and it makes the preacher more popular. And so both, both of us are faced with a challenge. So this is what we've learned so far. Now that same passage that warned me to not betray God also said something else that helped me tremendously. Again, very early on in, in my sabbatical. He said this, if you, if you the preacher compromise in the slightest, you will betray me. And then these words, you will also betray these people. No matter how much they might respond to you, no matter how much they might applaud your preaching, the, the smooth kind of preaching, you will end up cheating them of a holy life, a life from above, a life healed, restored, ransomed, forgiven by the whole. That was helpful for me to hear, because well, I don't want to cheat you. Do you want me to cheat you? Because what he says, no matter how much they might applaud that smooth kind of preaching, you will end up cheating them of a holy life, a life from above, a life healed, restored, ransomed, forgiven. By the, this is what will keep me preaching and I trust this is what will keep you listening. Because in the final analysis, Isaiah is good news. <laughs> when we hear the word good news or gospel, we almost always think of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But they weren't the first ones to use the word. Isaiah was the first one to use the word. I didn't know that until I studied Isaiah. In the Semitic time of Jesus, of Isaiah's times, in the Semitic language, uh, 
the word that we now use as gospel or good news simply meant a report. Somebody coming in from the war giving a report to David, so-and-so's died, so-and-so's alive. That's just, it was just, oh, somebody's had a baby boy or a baby girl. That's all the word meant. But Isaiah was the first one who used it in the context of good news. And so I want you to listen to Isaiah for a few moments. I want you to listen to his, not his gloom and doom preaching, I want you to listen to his good news preaching for a few moments. Just let the words sink in. Five times he uses good news. Here are some of the samples. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Zion, Mount Zion was the place where the temple was. It was the place where people worshipped. Jerusalem was the city where they lived in. If you will, the secular and the spiritual dimensions of their life. And the good news was that God was coming. God was coming to his people. God was coming to the city of his people. And God was coming in power. That was good news. And then later in Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. Same word again. Who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. This God who comes in power, comes not only to confront the enemies of Jerusalem, but he will come to establish his people as well. That's good news. And what will this comfort look like? What will this good news look like to give specific shape? The final passage of good news, uh, Rexdale's passage, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. This is the gospel in Isaiah. 500 years later, Mark took that same idea and produced the first gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the apostle Paul who used it more than anybody else, 60 out of 77 times, Paul uses gospel in his writings. But it was Isaiah who used it first. The God who comes, the God who comforts, and the God who saves. Now the next question that comes is, how does this God save? How does he confront the nations? How does he release the captives from prison? How does he give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness? How does he take an unholy people and make them into oaks of righteousness? (laughs) Isaiah's answer was so surprising that Israel missed it completely. You know what Isaiah's answer was? A servant. As Peterson wrote in one of his books, given this focus on the holiness of God, what should we have expected? An army of fighting soldiers, battle-hardened warriors, politically savvy statesmen, even angels, but not a servant. A servant is the lowest rung in the ladder. Israel shouldn't have been surprised. 
Because in their own history, servants was always the way God did His work. Back in Egypt, in that famous act of deliverance, what was Moses called? A servant. What were his people called? Servants. Their freedom from slavery didn't mean they were no longer were servants. They just changed their masters. Instead of being servants of Pharaoh, who was a tyrant of death, they were servants of Jehovah, the Lord of life. But they always were servants. So it is no wonder that Isaiah speaks about servants. And he uses the word behold. He who said behold your God also says behold your servant. You know why? Because he does not want us to forget that how God does his work is as important as what God does. Because we are called to do God's work but in God's way. And so listen to a couple of passages. There are four magnificent songs in Isaiah called the servant songs. And when we get to Isaiah 42, we'll get launched into them in greater detail. But just get a, get a flavor for it. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This servant was given a mission to bring justice on the earth, but he will do it quietly. No shouting, no force. Such will be the power of his service. And it will be successful. And then listen to the last, the most beautiful servant song of them all. We know it so well. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then suddenly, this, this is why Israel couldn't understand. How can somebody so exalted then be like this? As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. You see, they couldn't understand. They couldn't understand how someone so highly exalted could have an appearance so marred beyond human resemblance. And how would kings shut their mouth because of so pathetic a figure? <laughs> Isaiah 53 gives us the answer. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Although he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Of course, Israel could not understand this good news wrapped up in the servant. You and I understand so much more today. So let's kind of step back and look at what we've learned this morning. We need a prolonged exposure to confrontational and uncomfortable portions of Scripture. Because they reveal to us the true condition of our hearts as desperately needy. 
We move from pride to humility and maintain a spirit of humility and gracious service. This is totally in harmony with the Jesus of the New Testament who is the Holy One of Israel. This is a challenge both for the listener and the preacher. And then praise God, it's all good news, the gospel of the suffering servant. This is the journey that is ahead of us as we move through Isaiah. A journey that starts with a confrontation that reveals the condition of our hearts and ends in a lament is a journey that ends with the good news of the gospel of the suffering servant. But you can't skip the process. (laughs) There's no way to get to the end without starting at the beginning and working through it. It's a journey worth traveling, don't you think? And I trust that God will just prepare our hearts each week. Because it is, you see, when we see the awesome holiness of God, when we see the desperate condition of our own hearts and have learned to lament, then when we see the suffering servant, then we will rejoice and appreciate and honor Jesus in a way that we never have before. And then maybe, what Karen talked about earlier, we will begin to be humble servants a little bit more. I got a tiny glimpse of the power of Isaiah to do this in my own life. This is a journey that's going to take us months, if not years. But sometimes God compresses the whole thing in a very short time. It was this past Wednesday morning. His timing is always exquisite. That's why it's not smooth. (laughs) It's sometimes stirring. It was Wednesday morning, and Wednesday is the day I just set apart the entire day. That's my main day to get my sermon in place, to know exactly how I want to approach it. And so about, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, I was all set to come over to my study and then go out to the ravine and pray. Just then Sham came up in the head of the stairs and she said, Honey, I need, I need two copies of this music track that needs to be put on a, on a whatever it was. <clears throat> well, you see, you know my wife is uh, highly flexible on the Myers-Briggs temperament. I am incredibly structured. <clears throat> so you can tell what that moment caused right away, you know. There she was at the top of the church, a very flexible individual expecting a highly structured person to be totally flexible. Fortunately, both of us remained quiet. (laughs) She didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. For a minute that seemed like 45 minutes, (laughs) there was quiet. And then I said, okay. I said, okay on the outside. So I walked over and I was still kind of churning a little bit on the inside. But it was Wednesday. I had to get Isaiah ready and I knew roughly where I was going with it. I'd done some thinking on Tuesday. So I spent the whole hour in the ravine praying for this whole thing. And you know what? By the time I came back, I was a completely different person on the inside. I was able to go back and joyfully do what she asked me to do. And she knew my spirit was different because of the way she responded to it. That's, that's the journey. That's the journey in microcosm. It's exactly what Karen was talking about. That is ahead for all of us. Let's travel it together. I have two blessings for you that formed in my mind as I was last night. Uh, first of all, may, may not a single one of us miss this journey. May the kind of encounter with the Holy One of Israel that every one of us need, whether it happens at the beginning or the middle at the end, may it miss not a single one of you. And secondly, you saw how the sermon was shaped and the service was shaped by what God did, not just in my life, but in, the, in you. And so that's the other blessing I want to give to you. May you continue to be open to the work of the Spirit and let me know so that I can learn from you what God wants me to speak. May you feel just an integral part of this entire journey. Go in Jesus' name.